1 Kings chapter 15, verse 25, and we read into chapter 16 and verse 20. Now Nadab the son of Jeroboam became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. Then Baasha the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar conspired against him. And Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa king of Judah and reigned in his place. And it was so when he became king that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Because of the sins of Jeroboam which he had sinned and by which he had made Israel sin because of his provocation with which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel in Terzah and reigned twenty-four years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins, Surely I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields. Now the rest of the acts of Baasha, what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Baasha rested with his fathers and was buried in Terzah. Then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. And also the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha and his house, because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands. In being like the house of Jeroboam, because he killed them. The twenty-sixth year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah the son of Baasha became king over Israel and reigned two years in Terzah. Now his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Azza, steward of his house in Terzah. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the twenty-seventh year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And it came to pass, when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, 
that he killed all the household of Baasha. He did not leave him one male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah his son, by which they had sinned and by which they had made Israel sin, in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? The 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri, had reigned in Terzah seven days. And the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now the Lord, now the people who were encamped heard it and said, Zimri has conspired and also has hired, Zimri has conspired and also has killed the king. So all Israel made Omri the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibbethon and they besieged Terzah. And it happened, when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died. Because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin, which he had committed to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri, and the treason he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Well, let's pray. Oh, there are many parts of your word that are hard for us to understand, and sometimes we wonder why they are in your word. And yet, our God, we know that you have given us the Holy Scriptures. That every part is in some way profitable to us. And we pray that we may see something of you, our God, and your glory, and your majesty. And that we may be led unto Christ and turned away from our sin. And that we may feel the force and the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. This portion of scripture that we have read covers a very brief period of history. 25, 30 years, a generation. But it covers the reign of four kings. Nadab, Baasha, Elah, and Zimri. The second, third, fourth, and fifth kings of the ten tribes, the northern kingdom, Israel, that are separated now from Judah and the line of David. Not one of these four kings lives out their lives and dies in old age. Two royal families, Nadab's and Basha's, are extinguished by bloody coups. There is a seven-day king who, after his attempted coup, ends his life 
in rather spectacular fashion by committing suicide and setting fire to the royal palace while he and probably others are inside it. To the idolatry that was introduced and was rampant in the reign of Jeroboam, we now add violence, bloodshed, intrigue, conspiracy, idleness, drunkenness. And all this in successive royal families. And all the while there is one king in Judah, Asa, a true descendant of David, but there is no Asa-like figure in the northern kingdom of Israel to stem the tide of godlessness that now sweeps over the nation of Israel. Israel, remember, the prophet Ahijah had said, the Lord will strike you and you will be like a reed shaken in the water. This downgrade in the nation is but a preliminary to the uprooting that will take place in the exile when the nation of Assyria comes against her. You may well say, what's the point of this part of Scripture? Here is sin and more sin. Here is the advance of godlessness. Israel is giddy in its sin and disintegrating. You read in the very next verse of the section we did not read that having had war between the two nations of Judah and Israel, there is now war in Israel. They are arguing among themselves. There is civil war over who is going to be the next king. And we may be tempted to say when we read all these despairing things, where is God? Is he involved in any of these things? Very much so is the answer the word of God gives us. Evil is not in control. Satan certainly is not assumed power simply because sin seems to rule the day. And over this chapter, and over the events of these chapters, and over the four lives of these kings, you can write four words, just as God said. Just as God said. According to the word of the Lord. In chapter 15 and verse 29, we read, and it was so when he became king, that is, that is uh, Basha, that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shedonite. The same phrase is found in chapter 16 and verse 12. Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha according to the word of the Lord which is spoken against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. Ahijah and Jehu are God's prophets. We are soon to be introduced to two greater prophets Elijah and Elisha. And these men bring the word of God to this nation. And it is just as God says through his servants, the prophets. I want to look with you at three things this evening. Jeroboam's dark shadow. 
Secondly, the Lord's true judgment. And then thirdly, our necessary response. First of all, let's consider together Jeroboam's dark shadow that has been cast over all the subsequent events in the nation of Israel. Eight times Jeroboam is mentioned in this section we've read together. Seven of those eight occasions, it is in connection with Israel's continued rebellion and idolatry. You remember he introduced the golden calves at Dan and Bethel, and he introduced this idolatrous worship which became the established pattern in Israel right the way down to the days of their exile. It is as a stench in the nostrils of God. The last few days, if you'd lived, or the last ten days or so, if you'd lived in Ifield, where we live, there has been a vile smell. It even made the local papers. Anyone with a, a nose that has lived in the country knows. It's a farmer, much spreading. But for some reason it has lingered a long time and has been wafting all the way over Ifield. Well, I'm glad to say today it's stopped. I think there's enough rain and it's gone. But this is what it was like in Israel. This was a permanent stench in the nostrils of God. These people had established idolatry. Jeroboam had established it. And you can pick out some of the references here in order to underline in Nadab's reign, chapter 15 and verse 26. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. And in chapter 15 and verse 30, it speaks of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned and by which he had made Israel sin, because of his provocation, with which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. And a new king and a new house made no difference. Basha, the house of Jeroboam is exterminated, but the sin of Jeroboam is not exterminated. There is no Asa here. There is Basha in verse 34. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. And you find similar statements in chapter 16 verse 2 and chapter 16 and verse 7. And even the seven day king Zimri in chapter 16 and verse 19 speaks of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord in walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. Now you might say that's a bit unfair. The man only lived seven days as king. Surely he didn't have an opportunity to show his real colours. But Zimri was no different. And he is held accountable. This was his disposition. He made no attempt to change the religious policy of his nation. In fact, each then of these four kings, we didn't refer to Elah, but he is the same. Nara, Basha, Elah, Zimri. Each of those kings persisted in Jeroboam's idolatry. His dark shadow was cast over the land of Israel. These sinful men repeated the sins of their predecessors. In some cases it was the son who repeated the sins of 
their fathers. It's more of the same. It's worse. It's a depressing picture. And added to the sin of idolatry is the sins of bloodshed. It's a pattern of violence that is now introduced into the nation of a people who are still the people of God as far as God is concerned. Now it is not on the scale of the days before the flood but you remember that the days before the flood the whole earth was filled with violence, with bloodshed and something of that is now introduced into the life of the people of God. You see, once you begin to depart from God, once your worship of the true and living God goes, once idolatry becomes, as it were, enthroned, then all other sins are introduced. Once the fear of God goes from a nation, then anything goes. Everything goes. It becomes the pattern. It becomes the norm. And although we are not the nation of Israel, we would be very careful in drawing a comparison between the UK or the USA or any other nation and Israel. Nevertheless, we can say, in terms of principle, how hard will it be in our nation to remove what has become the norm? How hard will it be to remove abortion from our statute books? It has become the accepted norm. How difficult will it be to reintroduce capital punishment for murder? How difficult would it be to remove the laws that have been recently passed regarding the sanctioning of same-sex marriage, they call it. It's nothing like marriage. It's sin. But how difficult will it be to remove it? It's become the pattern. It's become the norm. That is what was happening in Jeroboam's day. That was happening in the successive kings. These things became the pattern. These things became the norm. People didn't begin to think twice about it. And while we recognise, coming back to ourselves, while we recognise the authority of the state, that it is established by God, it is meant to carry out justice, and promote good and avenge evil, according to Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, yet we must be realistic. We're not going to put our hopes in men, or new regimes, or new figures, who appear on the political stage, because it's very likely to be more of the same thing that already exists. These men are likely to repeat the sins of their predecessors. That should not fill our hearts and minds with cynicism and render us prayerless. 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us and urges us we are to pray for all those who are in authority over us. If we do not pray for them, no one else will. That is one way in which we are the salt and the light of this world. God would yet have all kinds of men to be saved, and we must pray accordingly. But nevertheless, there is this sober reality of a pattern that has been established, and how hard it is to remove that pattern once it becomes the norm. That is something then of the sad state of the nation of Israel. But let us come to the heart of this passage. The Lord's true 
judgment. Secondly, why did Nadab, who was the son of Jeroboam, why did he only last as king two years? And even that may be a generous uh, assessment. Sometimes a part of a year, uh, well not sometimes, a part of a year was always counted as one year. So he may have lived for only, he may have been king only six months, or even shorter. But it was, it fell in two years, it was counted as two years. He was killed. He was murdered by Basha and replaced by Basha. Why did Basha's son, Elah, only last two years or less? He was killed, he was murdered and replaced by Zimri. And Zimri only lasts seven days. They can't even account that as a year. Seven days, a week. Well, the answer the Bible gives us is very simple. It is just as God says. It is God's true judgment. God's word directs human history. These evil kings are not in control. We've seen in chapter 15, 29, and in chapter 16 and verse 12, in relation to Ahijah and relation to Jehu, this event is according to the word of the Lord. These two prophets, these two men of God, we've met Ahijah before, he had a lot to do with Jeroboam, and prophesied of the end of Jeroboam's family. But we've never met the other man before. This is Jehu, the son of Hanani. Let's look first of all at the fulfilment of Ahijah's prophecy. In chapter 15 and verse 27, Basha conspires against Nadab and kills him at Gibbethon. And according to verse 29, he kills Nadab and all the house of Jeroboam. Not just Nadab, but the entire posterity of Jeroboam. It's extermination, it's a wipeout for the house of Jeroboam. And this is precisely what Ahijah said would happen. You turn back a page to chapter 14 and verse 10. Therefore behold, says Ahijah, speaking the word of the Lord, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is gone. The dog shall eat whatever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whatever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. Those are words of a curse. They're not even going, some of them are not even going to be buried. They're going to be cursed. They're going to die in the open field, and they're going to be left to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That's a curse. And that is the Lord's true judgment. The Lord has spoken. It is according to the word of the Lord. This people have provoked the Lord to anger and Jeroboam is the key man. This is still God's people. Listen to chapter 16 and verse 2 as Jehu remonstrates with Basha. But listen to the way God speaks through Jehu. Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel 
and who have walked in the way of Jeroboam and made my people Israel sin and provoked me to anger with their sins. This is still God's people as far as God is concerned. These are the people that he entered into covenant with. They have broken the commandments of God. They have become like the nations. God's name has been tarnished. And the people of God are no longer distinctive among the nations of the world. This is no trivial thing. God brings judgment. God brings death. Not only to Jeroboam, but to his son and to his entire household. It is the household of Jeroboam that is extinguished. And it's according to the word of the Lord. And when Zimri conspires against Elah, the son of Baasha, this too is according to the word of the Lord. We read in verse 9 of chapter 16 that Elah is idle. Effectively. Because what does he do? He's spending his time with his steward. He's in the house of Azur and they're getting themselves drunk. That's how they're spending their time. They're in the house getting drunk. And while they are getting drunk, Zimri appears on the scene. He's a commander of half his chariots. This is an army coup, if you like. And what does he do? He exterminates not only Elah, but the entire house of Baasha. Relatives and friends are included. Verse 11. came to pass when he began to reign as soon as he was seated on his throne. He's removed Elah. But he killed all the household of Baasha. He did not leave him one male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. It is nothing less than the Lord's true judgment. I read it again, verse 12, to drive home the nail. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha according to the word of the Lord which he had spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. Why? For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah his son by which they had sinned and by which they had made Israel sin in provoking the Lord God to anger with their idols. It's a repeated phrase. Driving it home. Making it quite clear. Now, that may raise a question in the minds of some of you particularly. You say, if it is just as the Lord said, if it is according to the word of the Lord, then is not God involved in the bloodshed? Is he not somehow morally involved? Well, God is involved in the bloodshed, most certainly. But... He is not the one who is responsible for the shedding of the blood. It was not the Lord who killed Nadab and exterminated his house. It was Baasha. It was not the Lord who killed Baasha and his house. It was Zimri. And that is what the text tells us. Notice in verse 7 of chapter 16, for example... When you read, also the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Anani, against Baasha, 
and his house because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed them. He's accountable. He's the one who killed them and he is held accountable. Now we must understand then that God himself is holy. God is the Holy One of Israel. He hates evil. He hates wickedness. He is provoked to anger by idolatry and sin. But nevertheless, he doesn't stand aloof and detach himself and say, well, I'll get my hands, as it were, dirty if I get involved in all this evil and in all this wickedness. You see, some people imagine that when evil gets the upper hand, God has actually lost control and takes a back seat and Satan assumes power. That is not what the Bible teaches us at all. The other extreme is, well, God is so involved in the evil that he is morally compromised. That isn't the teaching of the Bible either. These men who committed these murders were evil men. The fear of God was not in any of their hearts. Look at Basha. Basha hears the word of the Lord from Jehu in chapter 16. Basha has seen what has happened to Jeroboam's house. His hands are the guilty hands. He was the means of their destruction. But God says to him, I appointed you as ruler. It's my goodness by which you are king. It's my sovereignty. But when he is told these things, and when he is told what will happen to his house because of his sin and because of his murder, there are no signs of any conviction in his conscience. There are no signs of repentance, there's no sign of any fear, no heeding of the warning. Perhaps he did not even believe that he was an instrument in God's hands to bring judgment upon the house of Jeroboam. Perhaps he thought, I did it. And I did it entirely by myself. It is quite possible that he had no time for Jehu and for Jehu's word. But he was responsible. And God held him accountable. How then do we understand God's true judgments? He is always sovereign. Four kings come and go in little more than a generation. But there's no coming and going in the throne room of heaven. He remains upon his throne. The eternal and ever-living God. God's throne and God's kingdom is never in a turmoil. Never is a reed shaken in the water. He reigns in Israel even though there is wickedness and there is evil enthroned in Terzah. And then, secondly, not only is he sovereign, but in his sovereignty he calls to account evil men for their evil deeds. We've already mentioned Baasha is held to account on two fronts. First of all, the sin of Jeroboam that he has perpetuated. 
and then the conspiracy and murder of the house of Jeroboam. And then there is a third aspect. Not only is he sovereign, not only is he sovereign and calling to account evil men and their deeds, but God in his sovereignty uses one evil king to remove another evil king. That's the extent of his control and his sovereignty. They are slaves, they are servants to do his will and to accomplish his purposes. Evil is not then in control at all. God is able to take even wickedness and evil and use it. And he was, they were used by him to remove their own kind. Evil was used to remove evil. And then on the other hand, God judged them for their own evil and violence. That's not an odd theme that only occurs here. I could take you through passage after passage in the prophets to demonstrate that that is the case. I will just give you one example. In Isaiah and chapter 47, we read about Babylon. You might like to read the entire chapter on your own at some point later this evening. But in chapter 47 of Isaiah, God says to Babylon, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal, remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not arbitrate with a man. And then notice verse 6. We haven't time to read it all, but verse 6. God says, I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly you laid your yoke very heavily and you said, I shall be a lady forever. So you did not take these things to heart nor remember the latter end of them. What is God saying? He's saying, Babylon, you are my servant. You are my slave. You were the one I used to bring judgment upon my people. But don't think for a moment that I have not taken notice of the way in which you carried out that judgment. And you will be judged for your evil and for your wickedness. I will bring you down. And that is God in his sovereignty. That is the way in which God's judgment then is true. And this is an instructive word. And there's a word of warning here. And there's a word of comfort here. It is instructive. Because we should not be so naive as to think that every time evil is overthrown, then the people who overthrow them are righteous. They may well be evil. They probably are evil, but God in his sovereignty will overthrow them. God is able to use them to bring about his judgment. But then there is a warning. It's a very real slap in the face for anyone who promotes evil and violence and begins to think like Babylon of old. For God will judge those who trust in their wickedness 
and say in effect, oh, no one sees me. No one takes any account of what I think and what I do. Trouble and desolation will come upon all such and it may well come suddenly. You think of Belshazzar, the very night when he was drinking and carousing and taking of the gold and silver from the temple in Jerusalem and profaning the name of God and calling upon the gods of the Babylonians. Then that strange hand appeared on the wall and his knees began to knock as the writing appeared written by the finger of God. And you remember, he was weighed in the balances and found wanting and that very night he was taken away and killed. Didn't our Lord Jesus Christ speak of the fool who says in his heart, you have many years. You've got plenty of time. This night, God will require your soul. He who goes on in unbelief, in wickedness, in evil, it's a severe warning, strong warning. But it's not only instructed, it's not only a word of warning, it's a tremendous word of comfort here. Of comfort for the church of Jesus Christ. And comfort for the embattled church of Jesus Christ. Here is an encouragement because here is our sovereign Lord upon his throne. You see evil, you see wickedness in this world, but he's in control. They are but his servants. They will also be called to judgment. Even if they have done the will of the Lord, that is, they have been the servants of the Lord, like Cyrus was, like Babylon was. Even though they have been instruments in the hand of God, they have done wickedly, they will be called to account. Righteousness will reign. Righteousness is enthroned in heaven and righteousness will triumph. Wickedness and evil will not. And that is our comfort when we see the wickedness of those who violently shed the blood of our brother and sister, Arif and Kathy Khan. Wickedness is not going to win the day. God is. Christ is. And he will call to account those who have wickedly shed the blood of those who have died unjustly. But then thirdly, what is our necessary response in the light of these things? There are many things. I'll concentrate on just two. Firstly, our response should surely be this. That as we reflect upon the outworking of God's sovereignty here and his control over evil, then our faith in our sovereign Lord, who is the Lord of history and of nations, our faith should be firmer and more secure and more solid in its grounding. His word is utterly reliable. It is just as God said. Things will happen according to the word of the Lord. That is true with regard to the promises of blessing. 
We saw with regard to the house of David that God had promised David that the lamp would not go out. There was the promise of a Messiah. There was the promise of David's seed, a king who would one day come, the saviour of the world, Jesus Christ. But it is not only true with regard to God's promises and God's blessing. Our faith rests secure in those promises, but it also rests secure with regard to God's words of judgment upon sin. What happened to Jeroboam's house? What happened to Baasha's house? Not only proved that Ahijah and Jehu were true prophets, because their word that they spoke came to pass, but it also tells us that our God is a true God, and He is the living God, and His word is to be depended upon utterly, whether it is a word of promise or whether it is a word of judgment. God's words of judgment that we are focusing upon here this evening concerning the wicked. God's word concerning the eternal destruction of sinners in hell will come to pass. What the prophet said about Israel, what the prophet said about the houses of Jeroboam and Basha, it came to pass. What Jesus Christ said about Jerusalem, in his day, and their refusal to repent, and that their house will be left unto them desolate, has come to pass. And what Christ said about the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 25, when he will come with all his holy angels on the day of judgment, and he will stand before the nations, and the nations will be summoned to appear before him, and he will separate the sheep from the goats, and he will say to the goats, those on the left hand side who have had no time for him, no time for his church, he will say to them, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And those things will come to pass. The Lord has spoken. Christ has spoken. Those words will come to pass. Our faith then rests in God's true word that he has spoken. Yes, the words of promise, but we are concerned also to remind ourselves particularly that his word of judgment will also come to pass. And we need to take that into account in the way that we think, in the way that we pray, in the way that we live. Because those very things in and of themselves, those who have been turned away from their sin, when we begin to think about those things, that is a motive, that is a reason why then we should pursue righteousness and turn away from our own sin and turn to holiness. And our labour, our preaching and our teaching is not in vain. And those who suffer for the faith and those who are even killed because of their faith, this is not in vain. But at the same time, that does not mean to say we care nothing about those who are under the judgment of God. 
The church is here to pluck brands from the burning. Who was the greatest persecutor in the early days of the church? Saul of Tarsus. And when he was converted to Christ, no one believed it. The church in Jerusalem was frightened sick. And you could understand why. He had to be introduced by Barnabas. But you see, God in his grace sometimes reaches down into the depths of wickedness and he plucks out a brand from the burning and turns them into a saint. That's his prerogative. That's his prerogative. That's his sovereign prerogative. That's his love. And if you've been plucked out of the burning, you may not be like Saul of Tarsus was, but it's the same love, it's the same grace that reached down and rescued you. Because you deserve nothing more, nothing less. And I deserve nothing more, nothing less than the judgment of God. But then there is a second response. It shows us here also the folly. There's a warning here, the folly of ignoring and resisting God's word. Which of these four kings, Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, which of them stood successfully against the word of God? Not one of them. They were felled. They fell like a tree being chopped down. Look at Baasha. He received a specific warning from Jehu. He had opportunity to repent and to stand back and see the wickedness of the house of Jeroboam that he had destroyed. He had an opportunity to make what we call today a reality check. There's not even a flicker of remorse, let alone repentance in Baasha. When Elijah confronted Ahab, at least he flickered with some remorse. And God showed a little mercy to him, not in Baasha. How many times had God warned Israel in the days of Moses about their idolatry? How many times had Joshua done it? What had happened in the days of the judges? And now the whole thing was being reintroduced. All the Canaanite worship and practice was being introduced again into the nation of Israel. And Jeroboam, as we've seen, consistently, persistently, and perversely deliberately put the word of God behind his back when it stared him in the face. And that man and those who followed after him paid a heavy price for resisting the word of God. You see how serious this was. Let me try and explain it to you. Jeroboam turned away from God. He introduced idolatry. He introduced a whole system of worship that was no worship at all because God had not sanctioned it. 
But in turning his back upon God, he had separated from Judah. And he had separated himself then from the Messiah and from the line of David. He was rebelling ultimately against God and against the line that David would one day bring forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ, by his sin, by his idolatry, by his rebellion. He was turning away from the living God, turning away from the blessing, turning away from salvation. And unless you are believing in and on Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, Jesus Christ, the seed of David, crucified on the cross, raised from the dead, you will one day face the judge. Jesus Christ. When Paul went to Athens, he preached to them, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. And he said, this Jesus, whom God has raised from the dead, he will judge. He is the appointed judge on that day. And God's given proof of it by raising him from the dead. You don't even believe that. It will not alter the fact. God's word cannot be resisted. The folly, the stupidity, of resisting God's word. I urge you, ensure that you are found in Jesus Christ. I urge you, ensure that you do not become a mocker, a scorner, a scoffer and a scorner and a mocker of God's word. Second Peter tells us, chapter 3, people said, where is the promise of this you can almost feel them standing there in their arrogance, pushing out their chests, putting their hands on their hips and saying, where, come on, where's the promise of his coming? Jesus Christ will come. He will judge. He will separate the sheep from the goats. A heavy price will be paid by those who refuse him and reject him. They will be condemned in hell for eternity. If that doesn't take your breath away, I don't know what will. It's an awful thing. Let us tremble at God's word. Let us tremble at God's true judgments. Especially against evil and against wickedness. And let us ensure let us make sure God's word comes to us and says, here is your opportunity again to make a reality check. Where are you in relation to Jesus Christ? I want to urge upon you this evening, in the light of all that we have seen, the sin of these kings and the judgment of God that came upon them. I want you to be ensured that you have fled for refuge to Jesus Christ. That you are trusting in the works of Jesus Christ and not in your own works or supposed works of righteousness. That you are relying upon the wounds, the blood that he shed on that cross to cleanse you from your sins. That you are relying upon his cross, the crucified one, the one who died for our sins. 
And you've been turned then from your own idols to serve the living and the true God. And to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. My friends, there is no other Saviour. No other Saviour. He is the exclusive Saviour. And he brings an exclusive salvation. Outside of Christ there is only wrath. Outside of Christ there is only judgment. Outside of Christ there is only anticipation of hell. Therefore you must have Christ. Because he is God's promised Redeemer and Saviour. And he is atoned for our sin. As we heard this morning, he has died for our sins and delivered us from this present evil age. He alone has qualified us to take our place in God's eternal kingdom. He, by his precious blood, has washed us clean from all our sins. And he, by his perfect life, has secured for us and put to our account a righteousness so that we are presented faultless in that sense before God. It is his blood, it is his righteousness alone. That is the only answer to the terrible sin that we see portrayed in this chapter. It is a horrific scene. But we're not left simply with the judgment of God. We look forward and we see Christ. And we see the hope of salvation. We see him who has made an end of sin. We see him who is the friend of sinners. We see him who has laid down his life for us. We see him who has changed a man like Saul of Tarsus and made him his own disciple and his own apostle. And we see him who has made us saints. We were sinners. We were under wrath. We were under judgment. Now, in Christ, we anticipate heaven and glory, righteousness, peace, forever and forever. Blessed be our God. Amen. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We thank that he alone can deliver us from the wrath that is to come. We acknowledge our God that we deserve that wrath. We have done nothing but contribute sin. Lord, were we left to ourselves, we should surely perish in our sin. Therefore we magnify your grace. Thank you there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Or may what we hear tonight promote righteousness and holiness in us and increase our longing for heaven and our thankfulness and appreciation of all that Christ has done for us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.